0: Have any of you here ever been to the Holy Land? Anybody made a trip to the Holy Land? OK? One person. Uh, sometimes Christians long to, to make a, a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, the, the land of Palestine. I guess I've never had a, been one who has had a longing to do that, and maybe because I'm just not a very adventurous person in general, but I've also heard about a lot of the commercialization that has overtaken those holy sites. And it really doesn't matter one way or another whether you make it physically to the Holy Land during this life. But there is one pilgrimage, one journey that is of tremendous consequence to every person. We might say even eternal consequence. You see, something happened in the land of Palestine 2,000 years ago that will determine the eternal destiny of every man, woman, boy and girl. And that is the death of Jesus of Nazareth on a Roman cross. And if at some point in your lifetime, you make the journey, not physically, but in your mind's eye to the cross of Jesus Christ, and you put your faith in the one who died on that cross, you will have the full forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. On the other hand, If during the course of your life, whether it be a short life or a long life, you never make that pilgrimage in your mind to the cross of Jesus Christ and never put your trust in the one who died on that cross, you will live in eternal misery. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to come again with me to the Holy Land and to a place outside the walls of Jerusalem named Golgotha, the place of the skull, and to the cross of Jesus Christ. Our journey, of course, is not a physical one. We're going there with the eye of faith, and the vehicle to take us there is not an airplane across the ocean and a tour bus in Palestine, but our vehicle is to transport us to the cross is, again, Mark chapter 15. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We've looked at the various dimensions of the suffering of Jesus. And last week, we looked at what was the pinnacle, the high point of his suffering on the cross. What was worse for Jesus than the physical agony he endured, the emotional and mental anguish as he was mocked and scorned by everyone around him? What was worse than that? It was the abandonment by God, his father. As one of the hymns says, the deepest stroke that pierced him, was the stroke that justice gave. So our text is once again, Mark fifteen thirty three to 41. And I'll read that in your hearing. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At that ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on, from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the, the last and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Well, last week, we focused on that cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we noted first the setting of that cry. It was one of the seven words that Jesus uttered from the cross. Actually, the only one that Mark records, and it's right in the middle. It is the fourth word of Jesus from the cross. We looked at the source of that cry, and we noted that it came from Psalm 22, which is an amazing prophetic messianic psalm that predicts that at the cross of Jesus, there would be people wagging their heads at him. There would, his, his clothing would be, uh, they'd be casting lots for his clothing. They would pierce his hands and his feet. Very specific predictions of the crucifixion. And yet, it was written by David a thousand years before the crucifixion actually took place. And then we talked about the significance of that cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I noted that if Jesus' death was purely exemplary, If Jesus was just a martyr dying for a good cause, his his death was not the most praiseworthy. With that sense of God's abandonment, there were many martyrs, men and women, who died with with a, a sense of God's nearness and God's presence with them. If Jesus was only dying as an example, his death was not very exemplary. But we noted The death of Jesus was not exemplary so much as it was expiatory. It was intended to expiate or take away sins. It was vicarious. It was in the place of others. It was substitutionary. As the hymn says, in our place condemned he stood. The hell that every one of us as believers deserved was poured out upon Jesus in those hours upon the cross. But Jesus was not the only one to speak on Golgotha. God the Father also spoke, not with audible words, but with visible signs, signs that were intended to make a statement about the death of his beloved son. There were actually four signs that accompanied the death of Jesus that came from heaven. Mark only records two of them. And since we're preaching through Mark, I'm only going to deal with two of them. And the first is this, the first sign from the Father, the cross of Jesus was the pall of darkness. Verse 33, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, Jesus was crucified at the third hour of the day, which by Jewish reckoning, which began at six in the morning, this was nine o'clock in the morning. Now, after being on the cross for three hours, this darkness came. Now, during those first three hours, the cross and Golgotha was a very busy place. There would have been a cacophony of sounds heard as the crowd passing by blasphemed Jesus scoffed at him, reviled him, goaded on by the chief priests and the scribes. The soldiers would have been bantering and, and in jocularity as they gambled for his clothing. Even the men being crucified with him would have been hurling insults at him. During those three hours, there was a lot going on. Jesus would have uttered those first three words from the cross. Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise, and woman, behold your son. But then at 12 noon, everything changed. From the hubbub of activity and the cacophony of sounds under that noonday sun, there came to be a darkness That moved in over the land and shrouded everything in its pall as if it were the dead of night. And for the last three hours, from noon till three o'clock, that darkness prevailed at Golgotha. No words are reported to have come from Jesus during that time. We're not told that anyone else said anything. Now, we're not told explicitly, but it's not hard to believe that perhaps an ominous silence fell over the crowd in the midst of this thick darkness. Now, we often don't know what real darkness is, do we? Because with electricity, we're, we're always exposed to streetlights and lights from the house. Have you ever been impressed with real thick darkness? I think one of the first times it struck me, years ago, I was taking my children camping at French Creek State Park. And we were going that Sunday evening, and it was after church, and so we got there late, and darkness fell. And we're in this camp. And we need to set up our tent, et cetera. And I was impressed with what real darkness is. You can't see anything in front of your face. Another time it impressed me was years ago, the year of my conversion. And a friend and I hitchhiked across the country to California. And we had nights that we spent sleeping under the stars in Nebraska or on the Rocky Mountains, away from civilization, away from streetlights and the lights of businesses, and you realized what real darkness is. It's really thick and impenetrable. Well, we might raise some questions about this darkness. What was the cause of it? Well, liberals and those who want to explain away the, the supernatural would try to say, well, it was an eclipse of the sun. But apparently it was full moon because it was Passover and eclipses don't happen during the full moon. No, this was clearly a miracle of God. As to the extent of the darkness, I mean, it could have been the whole earth or a particular land, but back in Exodus ten twenty two, God brought darkness on Egypt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. This was obviously a local darkness. How far it extended, we don't know. The most important question is, what did that darkness signify? A good way to find out is to search out the significance of darkness in the Bible. And if we look at some passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get an idea of what this darkness signifies. I'm going to turn you to a few passages. You need not turn there, but just listen. I've been in the book of Ezekiel for my devotions, and I came recently upon Ezekiel 32, verses 7 and 8. And God is here bringing a lamentation over Pharaoh in Egypt. He's bringing judgment on the nation of Egypt. Listen to the words. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. We move forward to the book of Amos. We have this day of the Lord, which in the the Bible seems to be the final day of judgment, but there are precursors to that. In some of the judgments upon the nations, they kind of foreshadow the ultimate final day of the Lord. Listen to how it is described in Amos 5, beginning at verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him or goes home, leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? We come to the New Testament. It is the same way. In 2 Peter 2.17, Peter speaks of false teachers having this fate. It says, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. And if we look at Revelation chapter 6, which is full of judgments, we read in Revelation 6, 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood. And then skipping down to verses 15, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Talk about an oxymoron. The wrath of the Lamb. But the picture we get is that darkness represents judgment. Perhaps the most relevant to the context is this. Jesus was being crucified during the Passover feast. And you might remember that with the original Passover in Egypt, that before God brought the plague of the death of the firstborn, he brought the plague of darkness over Egypt. And we read in Exodus ten twenty one that the Lord tells Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. The darkness over Egypt preceded The people putting blood on the doorposts and lintels and being delivered. Darkness preceded deliverance by the blood. And it might be here that the darkness on Golgotha was preceding the blood that was being shed that would really take away sins. So darkness symbolizes God's anger and wrath in judgment, his anger with human sin. And from the sixth hour, from 12 noon till 3 P.M., when Jesus died, there was this darkness. Why? Because God was angry. With what was he angry? What was the object of his anger? Well, I think we can say he was angry with the ones who were crucifying his son. They needed forgiveness. Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. Peter, in his Pentecost sermon, indicts the Jews and the Gentiles when he says, you nailed Jesus to a cross by the hands of wicked men. You Jews are responsible. And you did it by the hands of the wicked Romans. And so certainly God was angry with the ones crucifying his son. He was angry with the religious leaders. He would have said to them, you men who studied the scriptures, you should have known That this was my Messiah, the suffering servant. And you should have pointed my people to him to believe in him. But instead, in your self-righteous pride, you didn't think you needed a savior. And so instead of pointing people to him, you plotted his death. I'm angry with you, religious leaders. God was angry with the Roman governor, Pilate. He might say to him, sure, you were pressured. You were manipulated. You were intimidated by the Jewish leaders, But at bottom, you were responsible for delivering an innocent man to die. You loved your power. You loved your position. You loved your comfort more than you love truth and justice and a good conscience. Pilate, I'm angry with you. He would have been angry with the soldiers. You know, these men who were hardened in their hearts and given themselves over to sensuality looking forward only to the next guzzle of sour wine or the hearing or telling of a dirty joke and they're bantering and laughing as they, as they gamble for Jesus' clothes as the Son of God dies a few feet away from them. God may have been angry with them. He would have been angry with the passers-by. I'm angry with you because you allowed yourself, yourself to be influenced by your leaders. Now, it's always hard to know to what degree people are victims and to what degree they're guilty, right? When people follow false teachers and leaders, only God can sort out to what degree they're legitimately victims and to what degree they're culpable. I can't judge that. But people usually bear some responsibility when they follow false teachers. God's given them a brain to think. And God was probably angry with the passers by You knew my son, you knew what he did but you blindly followed your leaders in mocking and scorning him. I'm angry with you. God would have been angry with the robber who was hurling insults at Jesus. Now the one robber he forgave, praise God, today you'll be with me in paradise. But the other man never repented. And can you imagine, you know, him coming before the bar of God and God saying, you were were dying. And you knew you were guilty, and yet you used your final breaths not to repent and ask for forgiveness, but you used your dying breaths to insult another man dying alongside you. And that man surely would have heard, depart from me, I never knew you. So surely the darkness symbolized God's anger toward the ones crucifying his son. But dear friends, and the the commentators agree, that perhaps that was not the primary object of his anger. The primary object of his anger was not the crucifiers, but the crucified, his own son. Because in the text, the darkness corresponded to Jesus' cry of dereliction. It's dark for three hours, and at the end, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness over Golgotha corresponded with the darkness in the soul of Jesus as he was being abandoned by his father. And so perhaps the greatest anger that God was displaying in that darkness was anger toward his son. Now, mark it, God was not angry with his son per se because Jesus was perfect in his sight. With him, the father was well-pleased because Jesus had only and always done the will of the Father perfectly and only and always sought the Father's glory. God's anger was not directed at Jesus per se, but God's anger was poured out against the sins of Jesus that he was bearing as their substitute. And my fellow believer in Jesus, what is the significance of that darkness for you and me? God was angry at his son for your sake and for mine. Not that there was any transfer of moral guilt from you to Jesus. No, Jesus remained the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And you remain de facto the sinner. But legally, de jure, God was punishing Jesus for your sins so that you might be declared righteous in his sight, constituted righteous in his sight. Jesus experienced hell on Calvary, and it was your hell, and it was my hell. And as a result, God's anger toward you, believer, has been completely satisfied and completely appeased. See, God is inflexible in his justice. No sin in the universe will ever go unpunished. But the Bible says that Jesus has become our propitiation. It's a big word, but it's an important word. It means that he has appeased the wrath and anger of God that was directed at us. And as the hymn says, because Jesus, if he is your propitiation by faith in him, justice smiles and asks no more. To have Jesus as your propitiation Means that you never have to fear the angry face or countenance of God upon you, but only the blue sky of his favor and smile. Sometimes it seems like there's a dark cloud over us, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems like the storm clouds are are forming over us and we experience dark providences and afflictions, and trials, and even sometimes when we're being disciplined for our own sins. But be assured that those dark clouds are not clouds of God's anger and wrath. They are dark clouds filled with mercy. Do you believe the hymn that says, O fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. One of the old Puritans said that when you feel like you're in the darkness, the, the way you can know is that you're not really in the darkness, you're just under a temporary dark cloud, is because there are, there are rays of light coming through. Have you noticed that? When you're under a dark cloud, it's not the dark cloud of God's judgment, it's His mercy. And he allows little rays of light, little beams of light to come. And they increase until you're once again under the noonday sun. So God the Father speaks through the darkness and shrouds the land. When the sun is at its zenith, he shrouds shrouds the land with a thick darkness. Angry with the crucifiers, yes. But perhaps primarily with the crucified. Because of us. But there's another visible sign by which God the Father speaks from heaven, and that is the torn veil. If you look at verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way... Well, that will stop with that. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were two veils or curtains in the Jerusalem temple. I won't take the time to read, but you can read in Exodus 26, 36, and 37 is the first veil. It's at the beginning, at the start of the temple, at the, between the forecourt and the sanctuary. The second inner veil is between the holy place and the holy of holies. That's told us in Exodus 26, 31 to 33. The holy of holies was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the mercy seat. And it represented the presence of God over that mercy seat were two symbolic angels or cherubim symbols of angels guarding the holiness of God. Now, most commentators believe that the the veil that was torn was that inner veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. Into that holy of holies, only one man went one time a year. That was the high priest on the day of atonement. You see, God wanted to maintain a certain remoteness and separateness from his old covenant people. He wanted to impress upon them that he was awesomely holy, forebodingly holy. And you don't just saunter into the presence of God. And so only one man, the high priest, only once a year entered to make atonement on the day of atonement. That was the veil separating the holy place from the place where God's presence was specially manifested in the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. But at the moment of Christ's death, that veil was suddenly torn in two from top to bottom. What a shock it would have been to the, the priests that were, were ministering in the, in the holy place that day, offering the evening sacrifices. It, it would have been as though two giant hands had taken that, that veil and ripped it from top to bottom. And that veil was big. There are two golden doors, and Josephus gives us the size of the doors and says that the veil was as big as those doors. Quoting from Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian at the time of Christ, he says, This house, as it was divided into two parts, the inner part was lower than the appearance of the outer, and had golden doors of 25 cubits altitude and 16 in breadth. But before these doors, there was a veil, of equal largeness with the doors. So, how big was that veil? If it was 25 cubits high and 32 wide, it was 37 feet high and 24 feet wide. That's as wide as a soccer goal. I know that because my son was a goalkeeper. But that was a big veil. The ripping of that veil clearly was a miracle of God. But what did the miracle signify? I turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 22. Hebrews 10 tells us, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, why? Because the veil has been ripped down. Now we can enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The veil in the temple symbolized the fact that sinful man was excluded from the presence of a holy God. But as a result of the work of Jesus, the way is now opened into God's holy presence. The writer here calls it a new way, because it's a break from the old covenant. The old covenant way is that you drew near to God through animal sacrifices. But this was a new way because those animal sacrifices were only types. They really never had the power in themselves to take away sins. This way of Christ is not only a new way, it's a living way because it comes to us in a person, an eternally living person who is the way, the truth, and the life. And it is a way that has been opened to us through the veil of his flesh his flesh standing for his incarnation, which resulted ultimately in his crucifixion. So, for the believer, the torn veil means that we now have access to God. We have access to the presence of God and fellowship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Verse, yeah, verse twenty-two. Now we have confident access to draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. And when it mentions the sprinkling, that's a reference to the covenant referred to in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to read that. What does it mean to be sprinkled with his blood? Ezekiel 36:25 tells us Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The result of Jesus Christ dying on the cross And the father ripping the veil in two means we have access to the presence of God through Jesus Christ, through the veil of his flesh. We've been sprinkled with his blood, which means we have been cleansed of our sins. And not only that, according to Ezekiel here, we have been given a new heart, a heart that now runs after his statutes and wants to obey him. Not only have we been been forgiven, but we have been changed. Well, friends, what did that torn veil mean for the Jews of Jesus' day? When God did that violence to the veil in the temple, what statement was he making to the Jews of his day? What he was saying is that temple worship is finished. No longer will the the blood of bulls and goats and animals take away your sins. They were only types, they were only shadows. They were like the credit card. They weren't the real payment. The real payment was made by Jesus. And now that Jesus has come and made the real payment, we don't need the shadows anymore. You don't need the types. Animal sacrifice is finished. And any that are offered in the temple is absolutely worthless. And it was also a foreshadowing of what would happen in 70 AD when the temple would be utterly razed to the ground and destroyed. Never to this day to be rebuilt. God was saying, I have come and made the final sacrifice in the person of my son, putting an end to all animal sacrifices. They will avail you nothing. That's what it said to the Jews of that day and to this day. What did the ripped veil in the temple say to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world then and now? What it says is that any other way to draw near to God than through the veil of Jesus' flesh is absolutely worthless. And what a myriad of ways the human race has found to try to make themselves right with God, right? When you survey the history of religion to the present day, you see, people know that there's a God. Romans one twenty one says, everyone everywhere knows when they knew God, Through the creation, they did not glorify him as God. Man knows God through the creation. He knows God because what the law of God demands has been inscribed in their hearts. Everybody everywhere knows that there's a God, knows that he has moral demands upon them, and knows that they're not living up to his standards, but they're under his judgment. Romans one thirty two. they know the judgment of God, that those who do those things listed are worthy of death. So man knows there's a God. They know he's a moral being. They know a basic sense of right and wrong, and they know that they're not meeting up to the standard. They know they need to appease the deity. Somehow we need to get right with this God. And what a myriad of ways man has concocted to try to get right with God. The blood of animals. Sometimes the blood of human sacrifices. Sometimes in the Old Testament cult religion, offering their children up in sacrifice to the, to the idols all kinds of rites and ceremonies, good deeds, performances, pilgrimages, self-sacrifices, self-flagellations, all attempts to try to get right with God. But the torn veil in the temple tells us all of those are to no avail, that there's only one way to get right with God, and that is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And only in one place at one time where the sins of people paid for, and that was by the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so, if anyone is listening to me, and you have been trying to come to God by any other way than through the cross of Jesus Christ, in his name, I want to call you to repent of that, to turn away from that. That key will not get you into heaven. You will be turned away at the gate of heaven and told to depart because God never knew you. Jesus said that anybody who tries to get into the fold, other than by the door, is like a thief who's trying to climb in. There's only one way to get into the fold of God's forgiven, redeemed, eternally saved people. It's through the door. And Jesus said, I am the door. It's the veil of his flesh that brings us into the presence of God. Well, friends, let's pray and then sing. Arise, my soul, arise, and then come to celebrate the supper. Our Father, we thank you that not only did your son speak words on the cross, but you spoke not with words, but visible signs. The pall of darkness that indicated that you were angry, angry with your own son, because my sins were being carried on the cross by him. And thank you, Lord, that you gave this visible symbol of that ripped veil, showing that the way is now open into your presence where we could be accepted as beloved and loved and forgiven and become your children. Father, I pray that every person in this room would enter only by that door and not try to climb in some other way. Lord, thank you those of us whom you've shown that door and opened that door by grace. We thank you in Jesus' name.